0: To learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, transformative principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyber Ethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the use and misuse of digital devices.
0: Greetings everyone. Over the coming weeks and months we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it better take at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech society. The Cybertraps
1: podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research curricula development, publishing and media, professional training and public advocacy. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos, Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen more than $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, contact Scott at ScottRMedia on LinkedIn or visit buoyancydigital.com. Greetings there, Jethro.
0: Well, good morning, Fred. Why don't you (laughs) plunge in and get our guests started with us today? So I am excited to have Rob Chevelle on the program today. Uh, He's been working on protecting the online security and digital footprints of individuals and businesses for more than 10 years. He's the co-founder of Abine Inc., a leading force in defining a new category of products and services which both accelerate and protect Consumers, identities, payments, and online provis- privacy. Excuse me. Um, welcome to the program, Rob. So happy to have you here. Thank you. I also turned
2: my red light on, so I'm
0: ready to go. <laughs> Good. Glad that we got that taken care of. I do usually mute myself when I say that, but this time I just didn't. So, anyway, glad to have you. Um, I would like you to uh, talk to us about. You know uh digital privacy and some things that uh, that we need to pay attention to in the past you've been in uh, venture capital and uh, done marketing and recognized that that there were issues with people's data protection. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you chose to focus on that?
2: Sure, I think as an entrepreneur uh what, what many of us have in common is we want to solve a big problem. And you know, 10 years ago or so, myself and my co-founders uh, were looking at all of the data going into the quote-unquote cloud and all of the data uh, being uh, used and broadcast in uh, what was strange to imagine now, but kind of new 10 years ago. Uh, Facebook feeds and Twitter and things like that had really not uh, become the mass market you know, sort of uh, accepted utilities that they are today. And when we were looking at that, we said, well, what's the, what's the problem with all this? And, and, and we said, well, um, there, there's just no uh, boundaries. Uh, people are sharing their data. They're not looking at any of the terms of service. All of this stuff is now owned by, a smaller uh, and very powerful elite group of technology companies, and there's no, you know, sort of easy to comprehend tools for consumers to to use to to put some guardrails in place around their digital data, their digital footprint, and their privacy, for lack of a better word. So we decided to try to create some of
0: those. So one of the things that you have is joindeleteme.com, which is a Program called Delete Me, which takes your information off of uh, search results for Google, for example. And so, whenever you whenever you search for somebody's name on Google, you know you want to learn more about them, which you know employers do all the time. People who meet new people do it all the time. You get these um, results that say something like. Um, does this person have a felony with that person's name on there? And, you know, find out more about this person and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, just before the show, I put in a um a search in Google that said Sam White, Washington. I don't know anybody named Sam White in Washington. And um, and I got, you know, Bizopedia profiles, Spokio and a bunch of other things, 132 records found, got some genealogy stuff and you know, those are the top results in Google, which I know a lot of people want to make it on the front page of Google, but I find the first page of Google to be, uh, full of just spam advertising is basically all that I see there. So, um, how do you actually get people's information off of these, um, businesses that are brokering their data? Great question. And,
2: uh, you know, I think uh, all the Sam Whites in Washington, uh, hopefully, uh, should be delete me customers after this uh, after this podcast. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so the problem, as you as you point out, uh, is, is one where for the typical person, when uh, when they're Googled or when we Google ourselves, uh, what we find isn't um, some some useful uh, information that we've. Uh, you know, we ourselves have control over, uh, for example, a, a bio page at our alma mater, uh, where we were educated, um, with, you know, a link, uh, just to an email box that's associated with that, um, that context. Instead, we, we, what the typical person will, will see is, uh, as you mentioned, a ton of, uh we think it's worse than spam uh blatant exposure and marketing of their personal information and if you click through to these data brokers which is the uh primary focus of our delete me service is removing you from you know dozens and dozens of these data brokers what you'll find is sites that are advertising all kinds of salacious uh things whether or not those are truly associated with our profiles or not it's clickbait and they say, hey, check your criminal records, your sexual harassment, sex offender records. Look, learn about, uh, you know, past hookups and, you know, uh, family information and, and what's the net worth of their uh, business or their house? What kind of car do they drive? I mean, anything to get uh, clicks uh, because these guys are, are out selling information that we never explicitly gave them consent for. So you've got a situation where you've got over, uh, you know, fifty large companies and another, you know, couple hundred data brokers uh, in the in the United States alone that are out there promoting uh, and selling our personal information without our consent, without us ever having uh, created an account with them.
1: Is it fair to say, though, Rob, that um, consent was given at some point? I mean, that that a lot of this is. What I describe as selfie incrimination, right? That we are putting this information out into the world, and we're giving somebody in the stream of data permission, but we don't realize we're giving the resale permission.
2: That is that is right, uh, and uh, it's more complicated, as you know better than I, uh, with legal concepts of public record and uh, First Amendment, and so forth, and so. The, the US's approach, I think, has been very uh, Wild West, very laissez-faire. Hey, this is a new industry. You technology guys can do whatever you want with the data. We'll figure it out later. And what's happened uh, in the last, you know, particularly in the last 10 years is that's turned into, uh, you know, the nightmare that we should have expected it to be because uh, technology does one thing. It gets better, faster, and cheaper. It can't help itself. That's what technology does, and so the data brokers uh, that have gotten "quote unquote" permission somewhere—we signed up for a website, we downloaded a mobile app, you know, we we did something at our, uh, you know, we wanted something, so we filled something out. Um, all that they've gotten really, really spectacularly good, in fact, at aggregating and correlating that information about us. So instead of giving permission which made sense to us, hey, you can have my email address because I'm getting some kind of value uh, after I give it to you. That, that information has then been turned, resold, and turned into a, a, an incredibly detailed profile about us because it's been aggregated by so many different, from so many different places and can reveal very intimate details about our lives, our children's ages, their names, our additional family relationships, exact dates of birth, a complete history of the uh, places we've lived and the value of those houses, employers, uh, you know, political affiliation, and God knows what else. And the data brokers are busy saying, hey, there's lots of juicy information we can sell you about good old Sam White, um, who's 57 years old and lives in Bethesda, uh, click here. And for a mere you know, $7 or even as low as 99 cents sometimes to get you in the door,
0: They'll sell it to you. And so is one, is that information accurate? And based on what you're saying, it sounds like it is, which is a little bit frightening. And two, when we do buy that stuff, are we then, I mean, we're obviously participating in that economy, which is probably not a good idea anyway, but what else is going on there? Because I can't imagine that these people who are selling people's private information are also treating our stuff with the utmost care and respect and not letting it get out. That's hysterical,
1: Jethro.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I, I personally uh, have sat down with some of the CEOs of these data brokers and, uh, you know, their, their position is often, hey, uh, we have customers using this data for legitimate purposes, for security background checks or second factor types of authentication questions. And then you say to them, well, hey, if, if you think all the use cases for the data that you're selling are legitimate, let's look at your advertising. And by the way, would you just give us your, your customer list? Um, we'd be happy to evaluate it ourselves and come to our own conclusions. Never once in the history of the data broker industry has it happened. Why? Simple. They'll sell your data to anybody. They'll sell it to a Chinese company, which I think Biden just you know, talked about or tried to raise awareness around. Uh, they'll sell it to uh, somebody on the dark web trying to take data breach data and append personal information to it. They don't care. They don't ask. There are no rules. There are no restrictions, because, again, you know, this data has been treated as 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 consent based and public records based. And so, uh, you know, it's not dangerous, uh, according to the way the industry has been functioning. And, you know, I think that it is time for a reckoning. Obviously, I'm biased.
1: Well, I, I, as someone who's written a book called American Privacy, I share your bias with a great deal of enthusiasm. And one of the things I'd love you to reflect upon, because this came up when I was working on that book, is that we're really approaching the century mark of data brokers, that this stuff really began actually with the diners club card back in the 30s. It got right. juiced by the social security card system A little bit later as a response to the Great Depression, which was a good thing, but we created a system inadvertently that allowed data to be aggregated, which it has been done now for nearly 100 years. And then you get to the point where first social media and then geolocation turbocharged that. And I think what I want people to take away from this is the sheer comprehensiveness of the portrait that is painted of each of us. And I think you're absolutely right. The fact that we have no idea how far and how fast that data is spreading is the really troubling part.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'd say, um, you know, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, you know, know, know your history or, or or be destined to repeat it uh, forever, which is currently what's happening. Uh, as a historian,
1: but- I endorse that <laughs> message as well. <laughs>
2: um, You you, you know, I'll give you a specific example. When we started the Delete Me service, uh, we found on average about 850 to 900 uh, specific pieces of personal information across, you know, dozens of data brokers that we removed our customers from in the period of a year. And our subscriptions are annual subscriptions. And that now, uh, you know, six, seven years later, has more than doubled. So we 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 remove more than 2,400 specific pieces of personal information exposed by this set of data brokers uh, that we cover, which is always changing uh, because the data brokers are always changing their names, going out of business, reconstituting themselves, creating a new brand. It's a, it's a game of whack-a-mole, which is which is another unfortunate reason why services like Delete Me need to exist. But the point being, uh, to, to, to the point you made, these guys have way more data and they're getting better at finding it and putting it together into a profile that I think w- when, when it's revealed, the, the specificity of it is revealed to most people, they would be highly uncomfortable. Um, you know, handing that out at a dinner party or at a school function if they, if they went to meet a bunch of you know, the parents of the, the other kids in their school there's, it's just too rich and too detailed.
0: So I, I, I agree with that. I've thought a lot about um, how, if, if this information was divulged in a typical social setting, it would be it horrifyingly embarrassing. Right. And something that, you know, even, you know, siblings may not talk about how much money they make and yet it's their on the internet so as a a public school principal my salary was almost always posted as part of a disclosure thing because we were paid with taxpayer money so so for me that wasn't as big a deal but i know for a lot of people that is a real issue and that's just one tiny piece of that information uh when you say 2400 pieces of information it almost seems impossible for there to be that much information so when you say that what kinds of things are you are you talking about We've already talked about some of the basic things but like what are some of the stranger things that you see or that you request to be removed yeah well,
2: you know, it's, a, it's a great question I mean we see um, you know distant relatives names, ages and relationships not just you know your immediate family members but aunts and uncles, grandparents. I mean, family trees are starting to creep into these reports on occasion. We see VIN numbers from cars. We see uh, sexual preferences, uh, political relationships. Um, I I should get you a a full list because it continues to grow and in interesting, strange ways uh, because they never stop collecting data and they'll buy whatever they can get their hands on and as long as it's a match to somebody in their database uh, and they have enough of it hey why not put it in it's just juicier um uh material to advertise to so i you know i think it's um you know it, it but it you know we've been talking about sort of the salaciousness level of the personal information that data brokers have about people but you know we you know delete me's fastest growing uh, business you know we, we've mainly been direct to consumer but our fastest growing business is actually uh organizations companies um media uh tax finance companies coming to us and saying hey protect my executives protect my employees and the reason there isn't isn't so much that you know it's embarrassing to potentially see the salary paid uh to 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 an employee but rather um this kind of personal information is often used in phishing attacks so what happens is a hacker gets a database exposed in a data breach, includes a bunch of corporate employees, they find that, and then they can, use, they can append to it, data broker data to make it seem as if that company is sending all of those employees a very like any, uh, you know, a set of emails that only could have come from the company, because it's so rich, it's so detailed and includes all this personal personalization. And so what's happened is it's become a network and a cybersecurity threat in addition to everything.
1: Do, well, God, I've got so many thoughts, Rob, that are being sparked by this. But let me ask you the practical one first, and then I'll get to the futurist one, which is always an area of interest for me. So the practical one is, you know, this it, it stems off of the whack-a-mole concept that you're talking about. One of the issues that arises when I talk to groups is the fact that once data is out in the world, it's extraordinarily difficult to claw it back. So how would you assess your success in that? I mean, obviously, if you can find the data brokers, you've got something to work with, but doesn't a lot of this stuff drift into the dark web and get much less accessible?
2: Yeah, um, it's a great question. and uh you know the you know the simple answer i I think about maybe one percent of our customers sort of comes to us signs up for delete me and says hey by the way can you just delete me off the internet and you know our poor customer support team has to work you know hand in glove with those people to sort of disabuse them of uh you know, that notion. You know, yeah, you that's got to be um, a painful
1: conversation. <laughs>
2: but Well, you know, but but it's understandable. You know, people are so fed up. They're so fed up. They're looking for an easy button, right? And and, and we do believe Delete Me can be that easy button, but within realistic, you know, a set of, of more realistic expectations. So Delete Me is actually surprising. I mean, again, I'm biased. Go read the independent customer reviews. Go Google us. Go, you know uh, you know give it a try. we have a money back guarantee. Uh, so don't take my word for it but uh, you know we can't we can't have been in business for ten years uh, you know have you know tens, hundreds of thousands of customers with with fantastic reviews if it didn't work. Um, so you know we, we do uh, we do get effective results are they perfect? Can you remove all of your personal information from every query on the web and every database that you know is holding it? No. Is it an ongoing fight? Um, yes, and that's, the, the, that's exactly why we try to provide the service at a reasonable price. And we also, if you know, if price is a concern, we publish, and, and I think it's important to note this, we publish right on the main menu of our, of our homepage, a DIY guide, free, that helps step you through exactly the same processes for each data broker that we go after uh, removals on, so you can do it yourself. Uh, and, 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 and that is kept updated. And so, uh, you know, whether you want to, uh, try this yourself, uh, you know, or you say, Hey, I'll pay the $129 and you guys do it for me. Either way, uh, you can, it's actually surprisingly effective. And, and that's one of the messages we try to get out there, which is, you know, and Edward Snowden talked about it too, when using a, a tracker blocker that you add to your browser when you're browsing, there are a few things that individuals can do to protect their privacy and lower their digital footprint, which A, are surprisingly effective, and B, are not that hard.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about a couple of those things that people can do themselves that are effective and not that difficult. What are your suggestions for the normal person out there listening to this right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, there, there's not going to be a whole lot that's that's probably too new, but obviously, I uh, I would say removing yourself from data brokers, like we've just been talking about, is one one of those things that you know can be surprisingly effective, and people don't they don't necessarily uh, believe it, but but once they see it, once they see that you can actually opt, opt out and remove yourself and Google yourself later, uh, and 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 you, you see a much lower digital footprint. Uh, they'll, they, you know, they become uh, converted. So that's one thing. Obviously, uh, there's some sort of, sort of uh, motherhood and apple pie kind of things. Like, use a password manager. Like, actually use it. Uh, actually set up two-factor authentication for all of your key accounts. That means your email and your bank account, your email and your bank account, uh, uh, and, and 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 other uh, critical, uh, uh, you know, accounts that have uh, you know very important information in them. Um, and uh, use a tracker blocker uh, for sure, uh, ad blocker is what most people would, would refer to it as when you're browsing, um, because that actually does stop a lot of the third party data collection, which winds its way into this messy world of data brokers, even though they will claim that your IP address is, you know, not linked to your name and your personal information. It's not really the way that the gray web works uh but when it comes to the dark web which i think you guys mentioned um you know let's be honest the dark web is just a big fish tank of data breach information and once that information is out you can't get that back there's no way to remove yourself from the dark web that's the bad news anybody telling you differently uh you know is misrepresenting uh what you know uh you know what is what is uh what is an intractable problem however the dark web is somewhat less of a risk because it is very hard to access, very hard to use. It requires hackers trading and using cryptocurrencies to buy lists and then going to a data broker typically that's not on the dark web and and and, and sort of appending uh personal information profiles to uh to some of that stuff that's in breach. So you know, it's our belief that. You know, you can't do anything about uh, data breaches and information on the dark web in retrospect, but you you don't have to worry about it as much. And in terms of being proactive, uh, I should mention, uh, you know, our other product, which is called Blur, uh, which is a a password manager that also creates alias uh, identity information when you're signing up or shopping. So you you can do these kinds of things uh, and create a new email address for every website you register on. You can share a new phone number with a merchant that you don't necessarily trust. And you can even create a new credit card uh, with a one-time use credit card number uh, when you shop. And, 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 you know, the benefits of using Blur proactively when there's a, uh, uh, when there's a, a third party out there that you're considering uh, transacting with but you're not it's not amazon you're not you're not it's not apple you're not necessarily sure you have a high level of trust with them it's a darn good idea to use aliases which we call masked information um germane to our times of COVID. um but it's a it's a darn good idea because once those uh entities have a data breach all you do is turn is, is go to your uh your dashboard and you turn off that credit card that you just use one time, you turn off that email that you just used one one time, you turn off that phone number that you just used one time, you don't have to worry about it anymore.
1: Well, to paraphrase things, Rob, I mean, the the best time to start protecting your privacy is a week ago, the second best time is today. So hopefully people will get the message that we should really be looking at some of these options. Obviously, if folks wanna check that out, they go to abine.com, A-B-I-N-E dot C-O-M, and they can take a look at the things you're talking about. Before we start to kind of ease into the end of our show here, I did want to get your thoughts though on a couple of forward-looking things because you mentioned the family tree. And so immediately my mind starts going to the kinds of genetic information that 23andMe are collecting. Uh, you know, the, what's the other ones that are out there? I forget, there's a handful of different uh, genetic testing companies. It's not just the family relationships, but it's all of the medical implications and so forth that get wrapped up in that. And then the other thing, which is much more real world and I think legitimately scary, is the integration of facial recognition with all of these databases, because then you're really losing the ability to disappear into the crowd um, as many people at the Capitol discovered. And on top of that, you know, you're, you're adding to the layer of location evidence, which, of course, advertisers absolutely love. So there you go. I'll throw those in your lap. <laughs>
2: uh, great, uh, great topics. I would I would add uh, just the ascendancy of, you know, artificial intelligence algorithms to uh, to all of that as an overlay. Uh, absolutely right and and and, and sort of the decisioning that these algorithms take without any human input um and so we could talk about each one of those things but i would say uh you know when it comes to um uh you know uh genetic information uh you know i i think it's super interesting to be able to you know, figure out what percentage of you know whatever group your you know your your family tree uh, and you have uh, in, you know stored in your DNA I think it's cool that's why we've for six or seven years we've been publishing a guide to signing up to 23 me and ancestry.com using blur using max email addresses and phone numbers and by the way there's plenty of services now um, that that where you can create aliases uh, so so it's not just about our uh, our service but it's about uh, it's about signing up without giving these companies all of your real personal information. keep it pseudonymous uh and you 'll be much much better off and still able to consume uh and use and and discover and and buy uh you know much of the things that you want It takes a little extra effort though uh for sure so I think uh you know i i i would I would certainly not sign up for one of these uh you know uh genetic tests uh Without uh, w- revealing my real personal information, and I would not advocate any uh, anybody in my family or any of my friends to do so either. Um, when it comes to facial rec, uh, I'm I'm very concerned about it. I think it it's the technology is 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 almost there, quote unquote, uh, and uh, continuing to improve. And I think it's such a problem. Uh, with uh, the proliferation of of cameras uh, everywhere, as you mentioned, the Capitol. I was, you know, in Boston when the the Boston Marathon bombing happened, and then this whole network of of home cameras with Ring from Amazon and and you know and and everything else. Uh, you know, a, a, as I mentioned, technology doesn't have ethics; it just gets better, faster, and cheaper. And so I'm an advocate for just a straight out uh, facial recognition ban in the United States. Uh, I, I just don't see another way um, to uh, get get the kind of benefits of the technology without, um, you know, a significantly uh, uh, greater uh, loss of uh, of the privacy that we enjoy when we step out of our uh, house.
1: If you, um, if you haven't run across it, Rob, there's a book called The Transparent Society by David Brin. And one of the arguments he was making in that book is that in order to protect privacy, the only way to make facial recognition acceptable is for every camera to be publicly accessible to every person. And, you know, obviously there are very few police departments in the country that are going to go along with that. But it's an interesting concept.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Uh, it strikes me as a as a bit strange. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that you know an open source version of the Panopticon is uh, is pro privacy. But may, maybe let me <laughs> let me read the book and, and 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 have an informed opinion.
1: Always happy to have a Bentham reference. Thank you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but, 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 but but you know, so, so, sorry, uh, Jethro. But like another yeah. another point. The last point I was going to make is is sort of. Something that i think is actually happening in spades already uh and in some ways is more concerning than than facial recognition which i think could be put in a box and dealt with uh at a legislative level uh certainly is being dealt with at a community level you know uh don't don't bring your facial recognition on the premises if you're using Google glasses or whatever the heck the Snapchat guys are developing or whatever, but is, is sort of just algorithmic uh, decision-making on the data that we're creating. And that's the data with our personal information and the data about our geolocation and the data that we're sharing with a whole bunch of parties that we don't quite know about. Uh, And that can really affect, you know, I talk about this because it can really affect our, our lives in ways that, you know, we wouldn't permit if we really understood what was going on. So, you know, uh, medical uh, insurers, employers and, and uh, government agencies, all kinds of entities are running AI algorithms, which are sorting and recursively learning about the data that we're providing in such a way that they are making decisions uh, about what we get, what we don't get, what we're exposed to and what we're not exposed to that affect our lives without us ever being privy to that data and without us ever even knowing that we did or didn't get an opportunity. And so, and the, and the argument will always be, well, the algorithms can't be discriminatory. They're just learning from the data, but in effect they are being discriminatory. And, you know, it's hard, it's very hard to, to uh, you know, to give super specific examples, but there may be jobs, you know, that the majority of people have never been offered because these employers are using AI to call you know, uh, you know a certain um, subset of data that we provided to somebody or medical insurance yeah. options or, or things like that.
1: Well, you know that that's absolutely true. I mean, they've run all kinds of studies in terms of blindfolded applications versus non and so forth. I think actually your comments are really timely, Rob, because it was, I think, either the Washington Post or Times just this morning ran an article about Amazon firing people by algorithm that, that they are judged on these work performance metrics. No supervisor, no human supervisor evaluates them. And an algorithm spits out emails every month, firing people who don't measure up. It's crazy. It's
0: amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> that is crazy. I mean, it, it's fascinating to me as a, as a school principal where, there has been tremendous frustration on the part of teachers for um, reducing their performance as a teacher to a number using, you know, human-fed algorithms, if you will, which is, you know, basically rating them on different aspects. and And I think that that idea of somebody being fired based on an algorithmic suggestion is is just ridiculous. But the the point of that is, though, is that. making decisions can be difficult and you want all the help that you can possibly have, which I can totally understand, but then you're missing opportunities to, to have the right people in the right places at the right times to help with things. And that's, that's where we really have to find this balance of using technology effectively in a way that is meaningful and purposeful, but that doesn't overstep, you know, for example. So if, if you are a particular person who has a specific profile you may see want ads or or ads for jobs for specific industries or specific tasks or things that you could do that could never help you reach your potential, which could be much higher because your profile based on what they're getting is never even going to offer those jobs to you. And, and so then you never have the opportunity to you know achieve what you really could achieve because you can't find those opportunities because every time you try, then the algorithms are preventing you from seeing that. Now, I don't know if that's actually happening or not, but I can definitely see how that could be a possibility based on how much is already happening. Any thoughts on that kind of thing, Rob?
2: Uh, I think it's happening in spades, but it's very, I mean, the challenge for, uh, you know, in some ways, journalists, privacy companies, and and. Yeah. You know, the media in general is to, is, is to get better at exposing it. And it's very difficult. Uh, I think it's unequivocally true that um, the, the gap uh, between rich and poor in this country, the gap between capital uh, and, and wage earners is, is you know, is, is, is widening across every statistic you can measure. Uh, but what is the root cause of that? You know, is it, is, is it the things that we're talking about today? Uh, you know, I believe in part uh, yes, but you know, causation is very uh, difficult to
0: prove. Yeah, well, this this has been an awesome conversation. I uh, really appreciate you being here today, Rob, and thanks for the the work that you're doing and sharing what you're doing. Um, uh, if people want to check out Delete Me, they can go to joindeleteme.com, which is uh, like you said it has the DIY. Check that out, and it looks. Uh, looks like it would take some time, but it could be manageable, and the directions are clear enough that you can figure it out. Um, I do want to also say, um, as the uh, um, the Center for Cyber Ethics is a nonprofit organization, we did get another donation this week, Fred. So you know these things they start small, but eventually they'll they'll start building up. So Joel from Utah said, uh, grateful that I was able to contribute financially. So. If you are interested, you can go to centerforcyberethics.org and you can click that little donate button and you can also donate to the Center for Cyberethics. And we sure appreciate it. It helps keep this podcast going and helps us um, reach other people with this great message of making some wise choices on the internet.
1: Well, and it's a real pleasure as people who have founded the center to have someone like yourself on Rob, who's clearly out there doing the kind of cyber ethical work that we're concerned about. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, massive data brokering, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology.
0: You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have topic suggestions, guest suggestions, or just questions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this conversation. If that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us on Thursday for our next episode. And... If you'd like to donate, we'd love to have you do that at centerforcyberethics.org slash donate. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. Visit MyFlexLearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals.